are in the midst of a series of lessons I've simply entitled Amazing Grace. Our theme scripture verse for the series is Isaiah 30 and verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Living Bible paraphrases it this way. The Lord desires for you to come to Him so He can show you His grace. God is a gracious God and He longs to extend His amazing grace to us. This morning we're going to focus on serving grace. How God extends His grace in and through our lives to others. As we saw in the video clip just a moment ago, we're free to serve. Again, Galatians 5.13 puts it this way, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serving grace. Paul expanded on serving grace in Ephesians chapter 3. In fact, let's read these two verses out loud together. You have heard of my divinely allotted ministry, a ministry given to me to bring to you that grace of God that I myself have already experienced. I was made a servant as a result of the free gift of the grace of God which I experienced. Again, simply put, Paul tells us that once he had personally experienced God's grace in his own life, he then became a minister of that very same amazing grace to others. A servant of grace. I mean, what else could he do, really? What else could any of us do? I mean, if we truly experience God's grace in our lives, then we simply must extend His grace to those around us. Serving grace. As we consider what the Bible teaches about serving grace this morning, let's begin with our excuses from serving grace. Our excuses. When it comes to serving, I fear that many times we're like the people in Jesus' parable at the great banquet in Luke 14 and verse 18 where we read, they all began one after another to make excuses. (laughs) You ask for volunteers... Just talk about being a servant, about extending grace to others, and the excuses are plentiful. Let me just highlight a few of them that I've heard over and over again in 40-some years of ministry. I want to be served myself. I want to be served myself. Now, I don't know if I've actually ever known anybody to be so bold as to say it that bluntly, but I've certainly seen this attitude displayed countless times. Sometimes I see it in those who Sunday after Sunday sit in the pew as spectators, taking it all in, and yet never giving anything out as a participant. At other times, I see it in the consumer mindset as we arrive at church and wonder, what benefit, what value is there going to be for me today? Rather than having the attitude, what benefit or value can I offer to the Lord today? Unfortunately, our culture's sentiment is geared more toward serve us rather than service. In our society, to be served by others is a sign of strength and significance, whereas to serve others is a sign of weakness and unimportance. We know we've arrived when we get to the top and everybody under us is serving us. 
Now, of course, Jesus challenged that kind of thinking on numerous occasions throughout His ministry. One example, Mark 10, verses 43 and 44, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Here's another excuse I often hear. My service is not that important. My service is not really that important. There's some of us who think we won't be missed, that what we have to offer our ministry of grace isn't really that significant, so it doesn't really matter if we serve or not. But Paul certainly challenges that kind of reasoning. Ephesians 4 verse 16, under his direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing. Don't miss that phrase, as each part does its own special work. You see, in the body of Christ, the church, the, the, the way the church is to function is that each and every part is to do what he or she is supposed to do. The same thing's true, by the way, in our physical bodies. We, we know when a certain part of our body isn't working correctly. We call it sickness or injury. We know that we're not healthy and our, our whole body hurts and sympathizes with that one part that isn't working Right. The same is true in the body of Christ, the church. The only way for a church to be healthy and growing is for each part to do his or her share. The work that he or she has been designed and placed by God to do. We are, each and every one of us, vital and significant to the health of the church. Another excuse I often hear, I don't have time to serve. (laughs) I don't have the time to serve. Some people just say, I'm too busy. And then that excuse is usually followed by a long detailed account of the person's busyness. They rehearse their schedule and how they are so busy all the time. Now, notice how 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8 challenges this rationalization. In fact, let's read this out loud together. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. I think in this verse God is saying that He extends His grace to us in abundance so that we will have everything we need in order to extend His grace to others. Don't miss this. We always have enough time to do what God wants us to do. And if we're too busy to serve, we are too busy. And we need to reorder our priorities. Here's another excuse. I've already served. (laughs) That's an excuse I often hear from those of us who have been around the church for a number of years. I've paid my dues. I've put in my time. I've done my part. Let somebody else do it now. I am retired. By the way, did you know that the whole concept of retirement is never found anywhere in the Bible? It seems that the church in Korah struggled with this kind of attitude. They started something they didn't finish in regard to their giving. And so Paul challenged them in 2 Corinthians 8 verses 6 and 7, bring to completion this act of grace on your part. Just as you excel in everything, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I think the key word here is the word completion. Completion. 
Paul is telling us to be good finishers of what we have started. To finish well, to strive for excellence, to excel in whatever grace or service we may have. Don't be satisfied with past ministry. Don't be a used to wuzzer. You know what a used to wuzzer is? <laughs> yeah, you know, I used to was a teacher. I used to was a volunteer. I used to was a tither. I used to was this. I used to was that. Don't be a used to wuzzer. <laughs> Here's another excuse I've heard. I don't know where or how to serve. I don't know where or how to serve. Actually, that can be a fairly legitimate excuse for someone who doesn't know where he or she is needed or hasn't been trained to know how to minister in a particular area. And if that's the case, then the leaders of the church have a God-given responsibility. According to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, church leaders are to prepare God's people for works of service. Quite simply, my responsibility as a pastor is not so much to do the work of ministry as it is to train you to do the work of ministry. My primary service is to equip you to serve so that all of us are the ministers here at Springville Naz, ministering the grace of God to others. One more excuse. I'm sure someone else can serve better. I'm sure someone else can do it. Let so-and-so do it. He or she is so much more talented at this than I am. I don't know how many times over the years I've heard somebody say, well, I'm just that's just not my gift. Admittedly, the Bible does teach us that by God's grace we each have different gifts to meet different needs. For instance, Romans 12 and verse 6 says we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Ephesians 4 verse 7 says there are different gifts and functions. Individually, grace is given to us in different ways. And so I do understand that there is diversity and that each of us needs to discover his or her shape and serve in those areas where God has gifted us. However, we need to be careful that we don't hide behind our gifts to excuse ourselves from serving when there's an obvious need right in front of us. Let's read 1 John 3 verses 17 and 18 out loud together. Read it with me. If a person has the needed resources but refuses to share in ministry to the needs around him, is it even possible that God's love lives in him? My little children, don't just talk about love as an idea or a theory. Make it your true way of life and live every day in that pattern of grace-filled love. Our excuses from serving grace. I could probably go on and on, but I don't want to dwell on the negative any longer. Let's move on to the positive. Let's move from the problem to the solution by talking for just a moment about our example for serving grace. Of course, there's just one perfect example of a person who models serving grace, and that is Jesus. Jesus Himself said in Mark 10 and verse 45, For I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and to give My life for one and all. John 1 verse 14 actually tells us that Jesus is full of grace. (laughs) I love that. You get the picture, He's so full, His grace was just kind of oozing out of His life. (laughs) I mean, everywhere He went, He 
extended God's grace to others. And that's exactly what we see, by the way, when we read the biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see that He spent His time here on this earth serving others with grace. Now to give us an example of this, here's what we're going to do this morning. Earlier I asked you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapters 8 and 9, so let's go there right now. And we're going to do a little Bible drill together, so you're going to have to follow along in your Bible, I think, if this is going to make a whole lot of sense to you. So beginning in chapter 8, I want to give you just a glimpse of the life of Jesus and how He modeled this serving grace. We're going to take a look at two days, just two days, in the life of Jesus. And I think you'll see just what I mean. So pick it up, Matthew 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed Him. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. Let's put this in context. Where had Jesus just been in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Up on the mountain. The Sermon on the Mount. Okay? But I want to make it clear that Jesus did not live His life just in mountaintop experiences. He lived His life in the valley, in the trenches with the people. He didn't live in some kind of ivory tower of theories and real idealism. He lived His life with practicality and realism. He got down in the trenches with people. In fact, look at verse 2. A man with leprosy came, knelt before Him and said, Lord, if You're willing, You can make me clean. And in the verses that follow, Jesus does in fact heal him. Go down to verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to Him asking for help. Lord, He said, My servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? And then in the verses that follow, Jesus actually doesn't go. Because the centurion actually says to him, all you got to do is say the word. <laughs> and my servant will be well. And so Jesus speaks the word, and at that very hour, this servant is in fact healed. Down to verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. And then when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with the word and he healed all the sick. Down to verse 23. He got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! Of course, you know the rest of the story. Jesus speaks to their little faith and then He speaks the Word and everything is quiet still. Verse 28, When He arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came, coming from the tombs met Him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. You again know the rest of the story. Jesus healed the men. He cast the demons, remember, into a herd of pigs who ran off the cliff and into the lake and drowned. Down to uh, chapter 9. Verse 1, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. That would be Capernaum again. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Not what they expected him to say. 
But just to show in the verses that follow that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, he says to the man, by the way, take up your mat and walk. And he does. He gets up and walks. He's healed. Down to verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And boy, that irked the Jewish leaders even more. (laughs) Why do you eat and drink with these sinners, these outcasts? But Jesus, of course, as he did many times, had to teach them, that's why I'm here, to extend God's grace to these people. Down to verse 18. A synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And of course she was healed, remember? And then Jesus went on after that interruption to the synagogue ruler's house and raised this little girl from the dead back to life again. Down to verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed Him, calling out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And of course, in the verses following, He touches their eyes and they can see again. Down to verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Are you tired yet? You see, this this is two days in the life of Jesus. Did you catch that? We see Him again and again and again and again and again extending God's grace to people in a variety of different ways. And it all ends up at the last part of the chapter in verse 36. Jesus did all of this, He says, because He saw the crowds. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then He challenged them, Disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, he was saying to them and to us, can't do this by myself, folks. Counting on you to help me. And he concludes in verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And I imagine that Jesus was looking them square in the eye when he said that, uh, just so they understood. I'm talking about you as He's talking about us today. We are the harvest workers. The harvest fields are ripe for extending God's grace just like Jesus did. We are to continue the ministry of grace that Jesus Himself began. The serving grace that He modeled for us is the very grace that we are to continue to extend to others. We understand that our ministry is just to continue what He started. Which leads us to our final main thought today, and that's our expression of serving grace. 
How can we become more like Jesus when it comes to extending grace to others? What does it look like when we express grace to those around us? Well, to help us understand this question and its answer, take your Bible again and turn with me over to John chapter 13. Would you do that? John chapter 13. Here's another story from Jesus' life. And I believe that this story, perhaps more than any other, exemplifies serving grace. It's the story of Jesus washing the apostles' feet. First, I want to read the story, and then I want to make a few observations to give us some things to think about as we express serving grace to others. So follow along in your Bible as I read. John chapter 13, we pick it up with verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, that He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing and wrapped a towel around His waist. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The Lord, Simon Peter, replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. (laughs) Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things... You will be blessed if you do them. From this remarkable story, I want to draw out four key observations about serving grace. Four characteristics of serving grace that I think are truly amazing. Number one, serving grace is rooted in love. Serving grace is rooted in love. Love. John 13 verse 1 tells us why Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. You see, the washing of feet was a demonstration of how much Jesus loved these men. Serving grace is rooted in love. Now as soon as I say that, somebody will say, well, so what's so amazing about that? <laughs> Well, what's so amazing about that is that a lot of serving is not rooted in love. Sometimes we serve out of guilt. We're badgered and shamed into serving. Sometimes we serve out of obligation. Someone does something for us and we understand the protocol that we are then to do something for them. Sometimes we serve out of emotion. We hear a tearjerker appeal and we spontaneously respond to it. 
Sometimes we serve out of peer pressure. Everyone expects us to participate, so we cave in. Sometimes we serve out of pride. We rather like the kudos and the praise that we receive from others. Sometimes we serve out of desperation. Well, nobody else is going to do it, so I guess I will. Sometimes we just serve out of a desire to earn God's favor because we think that by doing this good thing, God will love us even more. Let me, let me just stop and ask you, what motivates you to serve? Again, Galatians 5 verse 13 instructs us to serve one another humbly in love. That's what should motivate us to serve. Love. Number two, serving grace doesn't want recognition. Serving grace doesn't want recognition. John 13 verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So, in light of that, what did Jesus do next? He stood up and He said, Men, may I have your attention please? I am Jesus. And I have everything under my control because God gave me that control and I came from Him and I am going back to Him and don't you forget it! Is that what it says? No, not at all. What impresses me about verses 4 and 5 is that Jesus quietly and humbly gets up, sheds His outer garments... I don't even know if the apostles knew what he was doing. He puts a towel around himself. He fills a basin with water. And he just starts washing their feet. No announcement. No, hey, look at me. (laughs) Nothing to call attention to himself. Just a simple, unassuming act of service. Now what's so amazing about that? Well, frankly, most of us want recognition. Most of us desire the appreciation and the applause of others. But it's not truly serving grace. It is not really amazing if you have to be noticed by other people. One of the primary tests of serving grace is to do an act of service and nobody but you and God know that you've done it. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 6, verses 2 and 3. In fact, let's read this out loud together. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them. Acting compassionate as long as someone is watching. Playing to the crowds. They get applause, that's true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. Number three, serving grace is often misunderstood. Serving grace is often misunderstood. Peter's response to Jesus in verses 7 through 10, when Jesus was going to wash his feet, I think is a classic example of what I mean. What Jesus was doing, you see, didn't make any sense whatsoever to Peter. 
No, you shall never wash my feet, Peter protested. And when Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, Peter blurted out, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. (laughs) Poor impetuous Peter. He just didn't get it. But folks, I want us to understand that this is what makes serving grace so amazing. It's often weird. Just to be honest, it's often peculiar. It's often misunderstood. They, people may even ridicule it. In fact, they may even ridicule us. Because it's an extension of God's amazing grace through us to others, it is by definition undeserved and uncommon. You see, grace isn't really grace unless it's amazing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 and 10, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. I bet that's not a label you like to wear. But it ought to describe us when we extend grace. One more. Number four, serving grace isn't human nature. (laughs) It isn't human nature. After Jesus finished washing the apostles' feet, look again at what He said, verses 12-15. through When He had finished washing their feet, He put on His clothes and returned to His own place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call Me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, one thing I didn't point out, and you probably already know, is that culturally speaking, the washing of feet is one of the most degrading and disgusting things that anybody could have done in the first century. Please understand, they wore sandals. <laughs> And their feet would get very dirty very quickly. And when they sat down to a meal, you do understand they did not sit down. They actually reclined on a pillow, propping themselves up on their elbow with their feet out behind them. Can you imagine a room, probably a small room, the upper room, filled with smelly, dirty feet? So it was customary that the lowest slave in the household would wash the feet of the family and their guests before the meal was served. However, here in John chapter 13, Jesus and His disciples had only borrowed this room to use for their Passover. And so there was no household servant to do the menial foot washing task. I mean, certainly none of the twelve ever thought that they should do it. Interestingly enough, just a little side note, Peter, by his position at the table, was actually the one that should have done it, according to Jewish tradition. He didn't think about it, but Jesus did. For the one who is the Lord of all lords and the teacher of all teachers, God in the flesh, to wash feet, that's crazy. Crazy, crazy. Look at Philippians 2, verses 3-5. through Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. 
Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of Himself. And how did Jesus think of Himself? Even though He was, in fact, the Lord and Teacher, and He deserved to be served by others, He set aside His own rights and His own privileges to serve others in the most lowly, degrading, and disgusting way you could imagine. And I say, that's not natural. That's spiritual. That is not human nature. (laughs) That is God nature. Well, let me summarize. How can we be more like Jesus? when it comes to extending grace to others? What does it look like when we express grace to those around us? From this story here in John 13, I see four key observations about serving grace. Number one, serving grace is rooted in love. Number two, serving grace doesn't want recognition. Number three, serving grace is often misunderstood. And number four, serving grace isn't human nature. And Jesus concludes in John 13 and verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if your preacher preaches on them. (laughs) Is that what it says? No, it says says you'll be blessed if you meet in a small group Bible study and talk about them. You'll, You'll be blessed if you memorize them. That's not what it says, is it? Moses says you'll be blessed if what? You do them. (laughs) Enough said. Amazing grace. This morning we've taken a closer look at what the Bible says about serving grace. How God extends His grace in and through our lives to others. Let's wrap up today's lesson by reading 1 Peter 4 and verse 10 out loud together. Would you read this with me? Serve one another with the particular gifts God has given each of you as faithful dispensers of the grace of God. May that be each and every one of us as we serve God and serve others. May we be faithful dispensers of the grace of God. (coughs) Serving grace. Let's pray. God, thank You for teaching us this morning from Your Word. Jesus, thank You for Your example of serving grace. We would not know what that really looks like if it was not for Your life and Your ministry and yes, Your death and Your burial and Your resurrection. That You put Yourself aside. You you laid aside Your rights and Your privileges. What was... What you could have grasped and held on to, you emptied yourself of that to choose to become one of us to serve and to leave for us an example to follow. And now let us hear your words that we will be blessed if we do these things. And may we be faithful dispensers of the grace of God as we extend God's amazing grace to those around us each and every day. That's our prayer in Your precious name. Amen.